0: Content warning: This series contains mentions of mental health issues, suicide, sexual abuse, and other sensitive subjects. This is your host, Andrew Pledger, and this is Surviving Bob Jones University, a Christian cult. I
1: believe the creation of God. both the Old and the New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God
0: the Incarnation and virtue of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Episode 4, Leadership, Control, and Daily Life. In this episode, the subject is focused on the leadership dynamics of power and control, and also the daily life of students at Bob Jones University. The first person I interview is Dr. Laura Anderson. Now, she did not attend BJU, but she went to Liberty University. And this section is from an interview I did on my podcast, which is called Speaking Up, where I interview people who survived religions and cults. The link is in the bio if you want to check out that podcast. But she had a lot of insights about Liberty University's dynamics that were the same as Bob Jones University's, and I wanted her to dig into it a little bit. And like something that I'm a little bit curious about you digging into more with like the dynamics of power and control. Um, because you know, I went to Bob Jones University yeah. um, and you went to Liberty, but mm-hmm. I think they both operated basically the same. Yeah. Because yeah. of that, that fundamentalist Christian agenda behind it. But yes. through the dynamics of power and control. Can you explain what that looked like at Liberty?
2: Yeah, so I probably had a little bit of a different experience just because I did get to do the hybrid where I'd go on campus and I'd Mm -hmm. come off and like those sorts of things. I think they recognized that they were working with students who like in the master's degree programs, you know, were not 20, 21, we're adults, right? We have our own lives, however, we still had to like sign like a modified uh covenant, right, mm, so like same yeah, yeah, so it was like it was this modified thing that they couldn't totally keep tabs on you, but there was but because of how fundamentalism works, there's always this like well, what if they find out type of thing, so it was everything from like like the drinking rules, like the no sex before marriage, you have to be straight all these things, right. That like definitely played out when we were on campus, um, that we had to, you know, like had to do. I remember one night going out with two of my classmates, um, because it, uh, in this particular class, um, it was during the summer. So they didn't have like meals and stuff on campus. So we'd go off campus and I was out with two of my classmates. And I think They both got like an alcoholic beverage and I didn't drink anything at the time because I was so terrified and especially wasn't going to drink in that context. Right. Cause we're like in Lynchburg, like Liberty is literally everywhere around you. And I remember looking at them being like, uh, you know, we're not supposed to do that. And one of the guys is like, I'm 35 years old. I'm going to do whatever I want. And I remember just thinking like, I wish I had like the ability to do that, but I don't. Um, but it was so it was like that on campus, like when we were there. And then when we when I was home, I went to an even more fundamentalist church than Liberty was. Like Liberty actually was like a a little bit less.
0: Like uh, I remember, I, rel- reading, I relate to that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, oh, so then I'm coming home, and I also can't drink because I'm working at the church in a paid. Well, I could, actually at that time I wasn't working at the church in a paid position. I was volunteering. But I knew, like, if anybody saw me out at a restaurant or this or that, I still had that um, oversight, the surveillance culture, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the biggest things. I I mean, I guess I can't speak for your experience at Bob Jones, but I think that one of the things that's so messy about fundamentalism that really gets to you is this idea of, like, you're always being surveilled. And so you never quite know, is this going to get back to the powers that be that's going to result in a lot of consequences for me um and i have like um i think this kind of goes along with the question you're asking it's not my exact my exact experience but um there's this idea and i can't remember like what what generation this was in there but it's um a shape called a penoctagon, and they used to make prisons this way and it's this shape that all the prison cells are like kind of in almost like a circular shape with their doors facing towards the middle. And in the mm-hmm. middle of this, there's like a guard shack, um, but it has like double-sided glass. So you can't tell where the guard is looking. And they actually, in these prison systems, did not ever have to lock the doors because what they, they because the you never knew where the guard was looking. People were like, I don't, I don't want to do anything. And then what started happening is the prisoners started kind of policing each other. Mm. So I would see you do this and so then I would get you in trouble for that or whatever. And then they would start to notice that each person was doing it to themselves. And whenever I heard about that, um, I remember thinking like that is exactly what these fundamentalist churches and schools and systems are like, where we've got like, God or the pastor in the center, but you never quite know where they're looking. And Mm -hmm. so we're all busy, like doing this to each other and to ourselves. And the person who's in charge is just sitting back going, look at these fools, you know, like, and, and we're doing that to each other. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, it just, it really stuck with me. And that's how I felt at church and Liberty.
0: (laughs) Yes. And I love that you said that because I didn't want to influence your answer by saying anything from my experience. So I'm glad yeah. that I didn't say anything because yeah. um, that's exactly how Bob mm-hmm. Jones functions. And when you say surveillance, yes. And what students say and people I've talked to is like, you are always being watched no matter mm-hmm. what. And like what you were saying, like you're telling on yourself and other people, like it's, we call it like the snitching system. Yes. That was in case. Yeah. Yeah. But
2: that was rewarded too. Right. Because, like, if you can snitch big enough on this other person, it actually gives you points. I mean, not literal points, but, you know, like it puts you higher up because, like, (laughs) oh, you notice the grave sin in that person's life. I remember after being kind of like out of the good graces of my church for something I had done, I knew of somebody who was doing something that was considered quote unquote worse. So mm-hmm. I turned them in, and then I could be back in the good graces. Like mm-hmm. that's so messed up. <laughs> yes, and yet, that's what we were supposed to do. catch mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and at Bob Jones, it's really it's set up in a way that if you see someone breaking the rules and you don't snitch, you're just as bad as that person yes. who broke the rule.
2: Yes. Oh, it's mm-hmm. so messed up. It is so messed up. Oh Yeah, surveillance culture is and it. And even like talking about it, like it like makes my skin crawl because I remember that feeling of like being being in that environment and and being so terrified of every move that you make, even mistakes. Right. Like there's no room for humanity. It is just like. Like, kill or be killed, which I know is, like, maybe a vulgar way of explaining it, but that is Mm -hmm. kind of how it operated. Um, It's it's really hard. You you can't ever be yourself in that environment.
0: The next person I interview is Sarah Caton. She attended BJU from 1995 to 1999, and she shares some of her experiences at the school up in a Christian home, your dad's a Baptist preacher, you were homeschooled with Bob Jones curriculum, so much indoctrination, and you here you are, you're coming from a still into a from a very enclosed and high control environment right into another one. And what were the feelings and emotions your first year at Bob Jones University?
3: This is something I actually write about in my book is that for me, it really hit me when we got there to the campus for the first time as students, my sister and I drove across the United States in a station wagon because <laughs> she was a senior there when I started as a freshman. So I went through the registration process and I don't know if they still do that in the library, but when I was a student that you had to go through like little stations in the library, like station one, get your whatever, your paperwork in your dorm room assignment, station two, pick up this, station three, sign this. And I remember like one of those stations was getting the student handbook, which you were expected to read and sign and follow. And it was like a book. It was a thick, multi, like hundreds of pages document. <laughs> and I just remember sitting afterwards, like reading through that handbook that I was expected to follow every thought and every line in there and just really feeling overwhelmed. What have I gotten myself into? Literally, the title of that chapter is called Prison Camp, because it felt like you were just signing up to go to some prison camp where you were overseen by guards, essentially. Yeah,
0: I think that is a great way to describe it, because that's how I felt especially like my first year and really all the years there, but especially getting there as a freshman and just realizing the control. And I remember just looking as my parents left, as they went out the gates and then looking through the the fence with the bars. And I was like, no. Yeah.
3: Even driving up to the campus, like you're going around what feels like a prison because it's surrounded by brick walls and or like metal barricade, you know, fences. And you just think, oh, wow, it's just a little overwhelming. And then when you go through and you realize that they close those gates and don't let people in or out at certain times of the day, and they check your IDs at the gate or whatever, like even just regulating who's allowed to be on and or off the campus, it feels like a prison in that way. I believe it was after 7 p.m. The gates would close and you had to stop by the booth to get like, Essentially, permission to drive on or off the campus Mm -hmm. because certain students, like for me as a girl, I know that they had rules that were different for girls and guys. So, for girls, especially if you are a freshman or sophomore, you weren't allowed to leave campus by yourself ever. You had to have another girl with you, and then you had to be back on campus by a certain time. Like, you couldn't, it was like a curfew kind of a situation. And once you got up into the old, I think, junior, senior girls could leave campus by themselves, but you had to still sign in and sign it back out or sign out and back in. So it was, yeah, it just felt a little, there was no freedom really to just be an adult because at that point, we're all adults. That's the hard part to, we're not children.
0: (laughs) That's, I think, what is and one of the many things that is so harmful about Bob Jones and these high control religious environments is that for a child's or for a person's healthy development. You need to be able to have that sense of autonomy and independence to explore, but you're not given that. I was talking with someone, I'm like, college is supposed to be the time where you explore new ideas. You try and experience new things and discover yourself. But at Bob Jones that's not possible. You're told what to think, how to act, what to do, what's the right way or only way. What were some of the like, really like core negative experiences that you had there?
3: Yeah. Or do you want me to, let's see, gosh.
0: You're like, where do I start? <laughs> I, know, I,
3: I remember one of my, okay, my, during my freshman year, there was this, so you know how we had to all go to chapel. Like they would literally lock you out of the dorms. You would have to be in your seat or wherever in the auditorium. But so during one of those Sunday morning services, they had junior is what everyone called him. He was the Bob Jones, the second. And at the time, his son, Bob Jones, the third was the president of the school. And he was called the chancellor, like the spiritual leader person or whatever. So on that particular morning, he had been Given the job to preach the sermon. And I had heard all about this guy from my parents. They glorified him and worshiped him essentially. So I was curious to hear what he was going to preach about. And he got up and he just started, first of all, going off about toothpaste and some crazy stuff about saving toothpaste and all this, like crazy, like it was just weird. And then he started railing into women how. Dare they think they should be working outside the home? How dare they be out there protesting and getting jobs and being anything other than homemakers and wives and mothers? And he like that was his sermon, basically, was putting down women who want something more for their lives. And I'm like, first of all, we're at a college. Like, isn't in it's at least half women. And so you think all of these women are there just to find husbands? Now In reality, yes, a lot of them were there only to find husbands. Like you're at a school where you're pursuing a degree theoretically to get a job and you have the leader, the spiritual leader used to be the former president, like getting up there saying, what, what are you doing? (laughs) You should be at home. And I was so mad. Like I literally was looking around the auditorium at like other people to see if they were understanding what he was saying. And if they were getting it, and I couldn't believe everyone was just like nodding their heads along with them like, yeah, that's true. And I wanted to stand up and just start shouting. That's how I felt inside. I wanted to be like, no, like, why would it be any different? For, For me growing up, I thought, why would a girl have any less opportunities than a boy? That's what I wanted it to be was that it was equal. But I kept bucking up against this environment that kept telling me that women are less. And so that just really... It pissed me off, basically. (laughs) But And then just seeing that no one else was reacting that way. No one else was, like, mad about it. Yeah, I think that is
0: such a maddening thing to be in that situation, to hear these horrible messages and seeing everyone else conform and not questioned. And, oh, yeah, sex is a run so deep and Bob Jones, and still does. And what were some other core experiences that you remember?
3: I think part of it, too, was just feeling they have a designated authority figure in every room. And then above them is someone on the hall. And then above them is someone over the dorm. And above them is someone over the women. And then above them is someone over the students. And there's this hierarchical layers of authority. And so I just remember like laying in my bed at night and thinking like, there's no like where you could go to be outside of this kind of all seeing eye of the influence, the reach of their control goes down to even within your, in your room while you're sleeping. Like I had, I was having nightmares where I was like shouting swear words in my sleep. (laughs) And I was afraid my roommate, my prayer captain or whatever was going to turn me in And I didn't have any control over what I was like saying in my sleep, basically. I did break a lot of the rules. I was terrified of getting caught and getting kicked out. So there's always just this sense of dread of someone always like being there to call you out if your, your skirt slipped up a little too far and showed your knees or God forbid that Your shoulder was exposed when you put your backpack on or just something like that. And you were the sense of always being watched followed me. Even after I left the school, I was still having nightmares about that control and that being watched for seven years after I left Bob Jones. I was still having nightmares. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's part of it, but.
0: The next survivor I interview has decided to remain anonymous. They were a faculty kid at Bob Jones University, and they share their experience of being a faculty kid, all the pressure, and how they escaped Bob Jones University. What was your experience being a faculty kid at Bob Jones University?
4: I did feel like, because everyone there knows who my parents are, I, anytime I would go into a class, anytime I even share with just regular people on the side, they know who my parents are. And so it was very scary and overwhelming going in, especially because I knew that it was going to be like that. I definitely felt like I was held to a higher standard, than everyone else. And that more eyes were watching me and either waiting for me to mess up or just point to me as the example to how to live. And I didn't want to do either of those things. I didn't want to be in the spotlight for being a bad kid or for being a good kid. I just wanted to live my life. And I couldn't be my own individual because they just, they put me in a box that they made. And if I went outside of that box it wasn't even that consequences would be really harsh against me. It would be really harsh against my family and it would look bad on my parents. And I just felt that wasn't fair to them. So I had to live my life perfectly so that it didn't come back and hurt them.
0: I want you to be careful because I don't want you to say something to reveal your parents' involvement because I know that would give away your identity. But what from what age were your parents faculty at Bob Jones University in your childhood? And then when did they stop being faculty at Bob Jones? At what age were you?
4: I was probably around five. So I don't remember a lot of when we were there. But they were still very involved in Bob Jones, because a lot of their friends were all faculty members. And even just with the teachings that they do at Bob Jones, it invades a lot more than just schooling.
0: And I'm really curious, when was your first experience with Bob Jones? Did that start in college for you?
4: It did start in college. And thankfully, I going in, I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. And I was not excited about it. I just knew the expectations and I knew the teachings. And I was probably still religious at that point. But I knew that Bob Jones was just going to feel like a prison to me. And I knew that I didn't want to do that, but I couldn't explain that to my parents. So for the first two years of my college experience, I went to a community college because I was just like, oh, it saves money. It's a lot easier and it's just a much better choice. And so I framed it that way. And then once I finished two years there, I didn't really have any way to get out of to going to Bob Jones. And so I just knew that there wasn't really any other option. So I ended up going there for my final two years. And yeah, so I went there for two years.
0: Ooh, wow. And so I can totally relate to what you're saying, how feeling like you couldn't tell your parents that... You didn't want to go there because there's just when you grow up in that kind of environment, there's so much pressure to appear perfect and saying to your very Christian parents that I don't want to go to a Christian college. That's probably one of the most disappointing things they could probably hear. And
4: And and I even offered or I didn't offer. I just was trying to feel the waters on it (laughs) because I didn't want to come out right and say it. But I even mentioned, maybe I can go to a different Christian college. And that was a quick, my mom said, you can, but I would feel very sad. It would be disappointed. So it was very much a, okay. (laughs) It was a very emotional manipulation thing that this is just something that I'm going to have to go through. I'm going to have to endure.
0: And so going in, what were your expectations of the school?
4: I had visited Bob Jones several times. So I knew the campus well. And I didn't really know that many people going in that were like around my age. So I knew that I would definitely feel very alone. And I had a lot of different beliefs. I was a lot more open-minded than the Bob Jones community. (laughs) And I had a very different view on life at that point. And I just knew it was going to be very lonely. And very basically feel like I'm living my whole life as just a secret and I can't share anything with anyone. Yeah.
0: Yes. So it's like you feel like you have to conform. And what was your fear that would happen if you went against that system?
4: Well, if I went against anything that they said or did or they wanted me to do, I knew that. They would have probably some of those conversations that are very, for lack of a better term, holier than thou, trying to feel out what I believe or what I did that's so wrong and how they're so much more superior in the Bible and how they can fix me and how they can change the way I am to be what they want. And what. And I knew that there was going to be probably several conversations with people that When I talked to them, I just shut down. I don't know how it's just I dissociate and completely shut down around a lot of those leaders there at Bob Jones. And I knew that would happen and that I wouldn't have any kind of voice. And I know that if it escalated to the point of being kicked out, which is very easy to do, it's very easy to get kicked out of Bob Jones. So I was trying very hard not to get kicked out (laughs) and not to do anything that would cause suspicion. But I knew that if I did get kicked out, I would either have to give some kind of apology to everyone in my church back home, because why not add more stress and trauma to someone? And I would definitely have a very different relationship with my parents where it's very much like I'm a child again that did something wrong and their parents are punishing them for it. And also because my parents are so much a part of that world and everyone knows my name, I would be made an example and I would be further punished for being, having X last name and all of my extended family and everyone, I would get a lot of texts saying, oh, I'm praying for you. I hope that you do live your life this way instead of this way. And so I just knew that I was not in a place where I could handle those conversations.
0: Yes, understandable. And so I'm curious, how did the teachings and also the rules affect you while at Bob Jones University?
4: I can't stress enough how much the rules affected me in just every aspect of my life, even leading up to Bob Jones and at Bob Jones. My life was purely living the rules. That's pretty much all I did, all I was. And so it made me feel very isolated and trapped while at Bob Jones, because I couldn't have any kind of slip ups, and college is a place where you're supposed to make a lot of lifelong friends and you're supposed to have new experiences and But with the rules and teachings, it made it impossible to find loyal, trustworthy friends because of snitching and manipulation and. I just, I knew what the teachings were. I knew what to expect, but I tried to view it differently. And I tried to just, I can get through this. And so it was very hard to find personal connection and even share with other people how I was feeling, how I was doing, because it, and it did come back to
0: bite me too. And when you were going to Bob Jones, did you live in the dorms or were you a town student?
4: I did. I lived in the dorms.
0: You lived in the dorms. It what was that atmosphere like?
4: So it was just very isolating. But they came into your room every day and checked it. And so it very much felt like an invasion of privacy. They're going to check through my things and check to make sure everything is done. They put it as you have to make your bed, you have to clean and just make things look orderly. But I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if they're going through things, but... So it just, it feels very invasive and very much, oh, I have to hide this. If I have something that's not Bob Jones approved, it, I have to know where to hide it. It definitely made life interesting, but it was not fun for me <laughs> at the time.
0: I think like the isolation is such a common feeling for survivors of Bob Jones. And so as you are in this environment and struggling with these things, who could you go to?
4: I didn't have anyone to go to. And that's what made it so much worse. I can't go to my parents and tell them how I'm feeling because Bob Jones is everything to them. And the rules are basically the Bible. (laughs) And that was actually one of my breaking points was when I realized I have no one to go to and talk about these things. And I did reach out to a friend who was not Part of that community, but she grew up with me. She went to the same Christian schools I went to. So she knew what it was like, not necessarily quite the extent that it was. But I reached out to her and it was like, I am drowning. I don't know what to do. And I'm honestly afraid for my life. I'm afraid, not that they would do anything, but I was just so depressed and in such a dark place that I just did not feel like I could go on. And and just knowing that there was no one I could turn to, nothing to do. And she really encouraged me to get into therapy. And a lot of universities offer like even two free sessions or something outside of the university. And so I thought maybe that's something that Bob Jones is going to have to do. And so I tried to look into it without asking anyone. I went on the website and was like trying to research and see. I found that they did offer free sessions for places outside, but it was only Bob Jones approved places. And that was my breaking point. That was when I just fell to pieces and was like, if I don't get out of here, I am going to just be a lot worse depression <laughs> wise. And I had a lot of suicidal ideation at that point, and it was not a great time for me.
0: Yes, The control that they have, even if you want to do things outside of the school, it's just insane.
4: Even if you're going off of campus, you know that eyes are still on you. I knew people personally that they would go off campus and someone would see them and report back to people at Bob Jones. And it was just that going outside, that community did not feel safe to me. So it was just, it was very isolating.
0: Yes. And as you're dealing with all these things and you're just trying to get a college degree. And to me, one of the things that as like a young adult and as a college student, you're supposed to go to college to study what you want, mm-hmm. explore all kinds of different ideas and come to your own conclusions about what you personally believe. And like you said earlier, have all kinds of different experiences and exploring yourself during this time but you can't do that Mm -hmm. at Bob Jones it's a very restrictive and controlling environment you're told what to believe how to think and you're told it's the truth this is God's truth and questioning Bob Jones in a sense can be seen as questioning God and I think that's how they have so much power and control is because they claim that their interpretation or their approach to life is based on God's word. And apparently, they can interpret God's word perfectly, and they have the only right interpretation. And that's the thing. There's this invisible, scary concept of God that they have. That's if you're questioning this, you're questioning God. And if you don't conform to our rules, you don't agree with our theology, then you're not really saved. And I say that in air quotes for people listening. And they assume that if you're spiritually right, you will automatically believe and think exactly like them. You will fall into line and no questioning and you'll be happy and you'll thrive. And that's not the case for a lot of people. And when you create an environment where you don't have autonomy and you don't have freedom of mind or thought. It's a very stifling and toxic environment. And also like you're exposed to a lot of harmful teachings and you're constantly being monitored and watched. And even in classes, as you're turning in assignments in certain classes, what the professor wants you to say, what conclusion they want you to come to, you're like, Oh, I have to come to this conclusion. So I won't stand out or I won't be seen as bad or ungodly. Like I have to agree with the teachings in this system. And so for you, as you're going to Bob Jones, one of the things that I absolutely hated was how busy they kept you with all these different activities. Busy with chapel, busy with going to Church at least two times a week, you had to get involved with a society. So, how, oh, sorry, and discipleship groups, that was another thing. Oh, just (laughs) continuing that indoctrination. What was that like partaking in all these activities?
4: It was, on one hand, it was very helpful for me, just mentally having things to always be doing, always going, because the second you stop, you have time to think and reflect. And that was not a good thing for me as someone with depression and anxiety. It was never a good thing when I had time to sit and reflect. But when the busy work is going to chapel, doing discipleship groups, going to society, anything like that. And it was just, it felt like it was all the time, every moment. They have something religious that you just can't escape from. And I would dissociate so much during chapel where I just, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't sit there and listen to this teaching that I knew was really hurtful and harmful to people. And especially my last year there, it became very overwhelming just knowing how many people they're impacting with this message and just how how hateful it is and how hurtful it is to everyone there and it makes you feel like you're the tiniest person in the world and just you're not important and you're very worthless and just this horrible person and they I notice they do this thing often where they will say oh god values you so much when you pray or you do all these things and they'll mention like how much you're valued and loved. And then they'll fill in something about when you do this or because you're a Christian or they just put these qualifiers on being loved and being valuable. So when I wasn't doing those qualifiers, when I wasn't, you know, praying every second of every day, then that must mean that I'm not valuable. That must mean that I'm not loved. And so it is a double-edged sword. So I felt very like I wasn't worth anything because I wasn't following all their rules. And I didn't know anything aside from that because that was my
0: world. Yes, like I, I think you put that perfectly into words and the emotions of it. You are made to feel so worthless. And they really, I think, break you down emotionally with a lot of their toxic and harmful sermons. And a lot of them are very shame-based. And I would also disassociate so much during that time. And it it got to the point my senior year, I just started putting my earbuds in during chapel. I just didn't give a fuck anymore. (laughs) I was
4: wondering if we could swear. i was like, been trying to censor myself.
0: (laughs) No, please let it out, (laughs) curse. Yeah,
4: I would write in a notebook. I would write... And just not pay attention to anything. So it looked like I was taking notes, but I was not. <laughs> I was either writing poems or just writing my thoughts, just anything that could take me away from the preaching.
0: I had talked about this with my therapist. I was like, yeah, I'm like, it's interesting because a lot of the times it was very shame based, very fear based, and very spiritually abusive. But I was like, every once in a while, they would throw in this chapel or this sermon that would just be overwhelmingly make you feel so loved. That was something that, I, that had happened to me when I was struggling emotionally. I was so tired of being beaten down. And then all of a sudden, Steve Pettit had this extremely incredible, loving chapel where there was no shame involved. It was all love and it just caught me off guard. And It just like emotionally got to me. And and I talked to someone about this and they're like, yes, they're like, that this is an interesting thing that happens in narcissistic abusive relationships. There'll be a lot of abuse and a lot of harm. But every once in a while they'll throw in these loving things to get you emotionally hooked back in.
4: And that was difficult for me. I I would say that any and all sermons, I was very even if it <laughs> felt like more Yeah. Um, loving and trying to wrap your arms I felt very no get off me I don't want any part of this so I didn't have that as much but I did definitely feel growing up I definitely felt that way but at Bob Jones I knew that it was like it felt manipulative even when it was came across as loving I just couldn't accept that it was I don't feel like this is right I just and I couldn't put it into words it just felt wrong to me and so I couldn't deal with it but also, I part of me really wanted to believe that the Bible and Jesus were real and really meant something to me because it meant a lot to me when I was younger and when I was a teenager. It meant so much to me, it was a huge part of my identity. But then when I went to Bob Jones, I felt like I just lost it all. And I part of me really wanted to hold on to that and find some way to still believe in God. And so in a lot of messages, when I was paying attention, I was trying to find something that I could hold on to. But a lot of times I just, it wasn't there.
0: And so would you say that this environment traumatized you?
4: Definitely. I, it did traumatize me in the sense that, again, like I hate to repeat myself this much, but I felt very alone. I will say, going into Bob Jones, I experienced a lot of my own, before going to Bob Jones, I experienced a lot of my own personal trauma that was very difficult, but I pushed it down a lot. And so when I was at Bob Jones, I started getting just constantly triggered and it, brought up a lot of repressed memories for me and just it definitely did not help so I don't know that Bob Jones itself was the most traumatizing thing in that moment but it certainly did not help my own experiences and when you do experience trauma the best thing for you to do is to um, one get help and I couldn't do that but I couldn't find a community that helped me. I couldn't really get out and try new things because Bob Jones kept me in such a closed box. And it definitely exacerbated a lot of my trauma. It doesn't help that people with personal trauma, they can't control the things that happen to them and when things happen to them. And a lot of times I was made to feel like the villain in my own trauma. And I couldn't get help from friends. And so that's when I really felt like I was truly alone and couldn't go anywhere or get help.
0: Yes, yes. And like when you've been traumatized, in order to heal, you need to leave or get out of environments that mimic or have those same things and you need to come to a sense of safety to heal, and a sense of belonging, and being able to truly connect with people. And you could not do that at Bob Jones. You you were always hyper vigilant. You always had to be on guard. Always had to be conforming. Always worried about oh, am I breaking a rule or who's watching me, and just always being indoctrinated and. There's just, there were so many shame-based messages too around mental health. And I, I love what you said. You're made to be the villain in your trauma. You're just, you're the bad person for even still having those emotions and triggers from that trauma. I I relate to what you were saying and I've talked to other people who are like, I no, I, same for me, I had trauma before even going to Bob Jones and they did not make it better at all. It was not a good environment as a traumatized person already.
4: I went to, so the first year was really difficult. And I knew that I would not be able to get out of Bob Jones intact, mentally intact. (laughs) And I didn't, but at least I did some better. So I saw a therapist the second year. Thankfully, I did see a trauma-informed, not religious therapist for my second year. And basically, the whole time she was telling me, it's not really going to get better because you're still in, in an environment like this. And so, basically, my job here as your therapist is to just get you through this year. And so, I didn't really experience a lot of healing in therapy that first year because it was just, we just have to get through this.
0: <laughs> yeah. How were you able to leave that environment? Because you grew up in this religious environment, your dad being a pastor, going to a Christian school, your parents having these high expectations, other family members being religious, and then you go to Bob Jones University where you're surrounded by more people like that in that belief system. So how were you able to get away?
4: Thankfully, I did graduate, and that was the goal, was to not get kicked out, and Because I grew up that way, I knew what they would expect. I knew what the right words were. And like you said before, with different assignments, I knew, okay, I have to end this assignment with Jesus is the only way. And this is how it relates back to Christianity and how our branch of Christianity is the correct branch. It's just, it was very, I knew how to mask in front of these people. And I knew, and I didn't really, I wasn't trying to be someone I wasn't, but in those, important moments. It's a survival tactic of, I just need to get through this. I just need to give them the answer they want and move on. And so I did that a lot. And unfortunately, it you still hold on to a lot of the consequences of going to a place like Bob Jones. And so even though I graduated, I still had a lot of those emotional scars. And after I graduated, there wasn't really, I knew I couldn't go back home I knew I couldn't really be with my old friends anymore. I just knew that I had to get out of there and I had to get away from all of that and everyone. And so I had to move out and completely start my life over. And thankfully, away from that environment and away from those people, I was able to start a life of healing. And so I'm very grateful that I could find my way out And really start
0: healing. What advice do you have for people who have survived Bob Jones University and are wanting a new way to approach life?
4: I will say the biggest thing that really helped me was just having a lot of empathy and having an open mind for new experiences and new things. And I love doing new things, meeting new people, and I love hearing different people's perspectives. And an easy way to do that without going outside and doing things is the internet, finding spaces on YouTube, or even reading books that are outside of what Bob Jones thinks is biblically accurate. It's, it was really helpful for me growing up realizing, oh, there's other perspectives, there are other people like me. And even those who aren't like me in these stories, it's a different perspective. And so it's helpful to learn that people think differently, people are different. And personally I think that's beautiful. I think it's beautiful that we have so many different worldviews and different religions and different cultures and just different ways of thinking. And I think that should really be celebrated instead of instead of controlled. And I think it is really helpful to meet people outside of that environment. Uh, even if it's going to a book club, if you have a dog going to a dog park and just talking with people, even I would definitely recommend not doing a religious job, getting some kind of secular job where you meet people who have other stories and have another way of looking at life. And that's really what's helped me is just seeing people who have similar stories to me and I read a lot of books about survivors in in cults or in other places. They're really hard to hear sometimes at first, especially when you're going on your healing journey and you get triggered easily. Sometimes it, you need to take a second to step back and just breathe and be like, I can't do this today. I can't finish this today. And that's okay. You can go back and watch five minutes more the next day or the next week. And just give yourself a lot of grace. And I know that for me, especially too, I grew up that way. And so I had a very, I believed those things. And so I'm sure that I must have said something to someone that was harmful or hurtful. And you just, you have to have grace for yourself and understanding that was just you surviving. And that's okay. Okay. And just learn from your mistakes, but don't hold yourself to those mistakes. Learn and grow from it. And definitely, I recommend therapy. I know some people don't particularly like it or don't find it useful, but therapy has definitely helped me a lot.
0: Next, I interview Craig Viette, who attended Bob Jones University from 2012 to 2016. Everyone, I am so happy to have Greg Bietti on the show today to share his experiences of surviving Bob Jones University and the effects that it had on him then and how it still affects him today. But I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. Craig. thank you so much for being willing to do this interview.
1: Yeah, Andrew, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to getting into the discussion. Of course, yeah. And
0: something that I've been so excited about this podcast is all the different backgrounds of survivors and their different experiences. So yeah, I'm excited to hear about your personal experiences on the university and the toxic culture. But for people who do not know you, could you do a quick introduction about the work you do and also the years you were at Bob Jones University.
1: Yeah, my name is Craig Vietti. I was born and raised in York, Pennsylvania. I attended BJU from 2012 to the spring of 2016. Actually, the fall semester of 2016 was my last semester there. I was a cinema major and spent a few years in Greenville after school. Ended up landing here in northern Maine, up in Presque Isle. And I currently work for a domestic violence resource center up here as a campus outreach advocate. And so I travel to four local colleges and just have discussions with students about healthy relationships, as well as providing space for one-on-one advocacy for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Yeah, thank you for
0: sharing that introduction. And it's just incredible, the work that you do. And I think also, like domestic violence and coercive control, I think, as people will see throughout this podcast, how these different toxic religious and cultic environments create abusive situations and abusive dynamics. So I'm glad that you're educated on it. You know what it looks like, and you experienced that yourself, at Bob Jones diversity, that coercive control and those power dynamics. And now you're able to educate other people and help others through that. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on the show today because of your knowledge in
1: that area. But well, I, as- yeah, I appreciate that. I will say that when I first got this position, and went through some of the training that we do, it was quite eye-opening just to look back and see how aspects of power and control really are strongly at play, both at Bob Jones and in my life before that. And I'm really passionate about, a lot of people don't even realize that they're either in an abusive relationship or environment or that they are helping perpetuate that. And anytime I have an opportunity to speak to others about uh, these things, it's really, it's a gift. I'm grateful to do it.
0: Yes. And so as we get into this interview, what were some things that you learned about power and control that you recognize at Bob Jones? And I also like what you said about there are people who don't realize it, that they're in these situations. And I think It's because when it becomes your whole world, your whole bubble, it becomes so normalized and you're taught not to question. But through your education and training, what are some things about power control that you saw parallels at Bob Jones University?
1: I would say, I think when you're in any environment that's heavily religious, especially an institution, control is a very large part of that. But one thing that's been really interesting to learn is that um, when we as humans don't feel like we have power over our own decisions and we're not in control of our own choices, we look to get that power and control over other people. And looking back at my experience at Bob Jones, there were power and control dynamics all over the place. But I think especially for women there, it was much worse because they're automatically born more often than not born into an environment where they don't have a lot of power control over their own choices, over their own bodily autonomy. And so I know that a lot of my friends there at school had it much worse on the women's side of things in dorms and with other supervisors, just a natural unfolding of that. These women who were in places of the positions of power definitely used it and and leaned into that to find some sense of power and control in their own lives. It was really interesting to, to look back on and see that play out over and over. Thank you so much for sharing that incredible
0: insight because that's something I guess I never considered before because i've heard so many horrible stories about the women like the very few women who are given these positions of authority and they just go crazy with it and they're it really they're, wrong with her. they're really good, are awful a lot of them and then you know the guys part of it there are definitely bad leadership in the men's area but I don't think it's as bad in the men's dorms with this extreme love of power and control and using it and abusing it. And, and then I would hear these horror stories of these women supervisors and the dean of women. And I'm like, what in the world? But thank you so much for sharing that and making me aware. I've never thought of it in that aspect of these women are oppressed in these environments. They're not given They don't have autonomy. They don't have choices. And then these few women are given these special, like, positions of authority, and they have that, and it makes them feel in control, and it gives them that power and gives them that feeling. What other insights you have on that or anything else that you would want to share? Please dig into that.
1: Yeah, I think especially when it comes to relationships, the patriarchal aspect of that and the type of environment they're including the teaching the curriculum about relationships about marriage about what that is supposed to look like just sets up situations for people to be either abused or trapped in a relationship that is not healthy is not good this strong emphasis on male leadership or headship it takes away A woman's ability to have her own life. She really becomes a servant in a way, but there are these underlying messages of worth that really get ingrained that you have this specific role and you do these things and we're all equal, but we have different roles. And more often than not, the roles of men are much more respected, even though they'll play it like, no, we respect your role, but They all end up being roles that are not historically respected, whether in the home or the workplace. And that was just doubled down on all the time. And I can say I heard a lot of different sermons and talks about submission growing up, and that was some pressure that I never necessarily wanted. (laughs) There were times where I thoroughly believed it and it probably served me, but I have since fully rejected that. Yeah, another really wild thing is the emphasis on purity culture. Growing up, all throughout my childhood and the high school and into my college experience, I heard so many sermons about purity and not a single sermon about consent. And looking back, that, again, is very eye-opening. We're setting up our young women to be abused and we're setting up our young men to fail to to abuse and to mistreat people that's obvious
0: yeah like i agree 100 and the thing is they still defend it they still mm. defend this abusive dynamic and i think this extreme movement and fundamentalism and how the patriarchal family the umbrella of authority creates these abusive family dynamics and like i think of it as like a set of russian dolls in a sense of how with your larger church organization there it has that structure there and then they perpetuate it in your family and mm-hmm. then it happens in an interpersonal relationships so it's one underneath
1: the other duplicating itself oh yeah and you can take that and expand it out even past religion this also ties in culturally politically yeah you know, the church has done a pretty terrible job of for all the talk at Bob Jones about being separate or different from the world <laughs> when it comes to relationship dynamics they have followed suit with what our culture has done since humans have been around <laughs> it's not countercultural in any way but i feel like that is lost
0: in the next segment of this episode, I interview Nate Decal. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to have Nate Decal on the show today. He is the producer and co-host of the Full Mutuality podcast and the co-founder of the Dauntless Media Collective. Thank you so much, Nate, for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Of course. I'm so excited to dig into your story and hear about your experiences at Bob Jones University. But for people who don't know you, can you tell a little bit about yourself and what years you were at Bob Jones University?
5: Sure. So I attended Bob Jones University from 2003 to 2007. When I was growing up, I was a Big James Bond fan. And I thought it was really cool that I was graduating in the class of 07, but obviously I was not allowed to make any cool t shirts or anything because we're talking about Bob Jones here. (laughs) But yeah, my, my background was very much a part of the Bob Jones culture. I grew up in an independent fundamentalist Baptist church up here in New Jersey. And it was a feeder church for schools like Bob Jones, Northland Baptist Bible College, Clearwater Christian College. And even Pensacola, even though my church was not KJV only, Pensacola did send ministry teams to my church and school. Despite us not being KJV only, we were KJV heavy, like many churches in the IFB. But my pastor growing up liked to use the New American Standard version during our evening services. while sticking to the KJV during morning services. Yeah, I grew up in a world that was very closely tied in with that whole fundamentalist orbit around places like Bob Jones. What were your impressions of Bob Jones? While I was growing up, I ended up visiting Bob Jones relatively frequently throughout high school. I participated in, I was a musician growing up, and so I participated in a a lot of fine arts competitions, and when you win it at the state level, you compete at the national level, and the national competitions were always hosted at Bob Jones University. I would go there for, for the fine arts competitions, and that was my first exposure to the campus, and I developed a familiarity with the campus through those visits, and that was annual and then i started attending summer camps down there and so again developing more familiarity with the campus and so it just became the primary option i felt you know what i'm i already feel at home at this place i'm comfortable with the environment i'm not going to feel like i really need to learn my way around something completely brand new so yeah that's how i ended up attending the university For school, I didn't have at the time, I didn't have this personality of if it's not working, step away and reevaluate. I developed that much later in life. So for me, despite the sudden realization that I was probably in over my head and I was getting pulled into a culture that I didn't feel completely comfortable with, I decided, you know what, I can stick it out. And I justified it a lot in my head. This is. This is good discipline for me. The education is top-notch, as we were being told. <laughs> and yeah, so all of those thoughts were running around in my head, and that's what kind of kept me there when internally, I think looking back, had I listened to my body, I would have recognized I'm not safe here. There's, there, there's really nothing for me here. And also my prospects beyond this world aren't good, but again, having grown up in the IFB world, you just assume that is the be-all, end-all. And, and so anything beyond that world is sinful or anathema or anything, anything like that. So yeah, that's how I ended up there and what kept me there. And then by the time I started getting that feeling like, no, this isn't really the place for me, I had succumbed to the sunk cost fallacy and was like, you know what, I've already done three years, might as well just put my buckle down and and just get into it.
0: From your experiences, let's start with what was a day in the life of a Bob Jones student
5: in the 2000s? So when I got there, there were a few rules that had just recently been scaled back or removed and one of them being the the early morning bell the rising bell so i was still like the, the students that were there just prior to me like the upperclassmen when i was when i started attending they, they were all like so used to getting up at i think the bell would go off at like 655 a.m. or something like that so they were all used to getting up really early so my room was always bustling with activity at 7 a.m. and my first year, I was like, oh, I want to do the whole sleeping in thing. So I didn't schedule myself any morning classes. So my first commitment was chapel in the morning. And then, so the rules but, at the time, I don't know if these are still there, but for for guys, it was shirt and tie. And we had to wear a tie all the way through chapel. And then after chapel, we could remove our our neckties, But we weren't allowed to wear a necktie that was, like, partially, like, we couldn't loosen our necktie. It was either all the way on, like, up, top button buttoned, or completely off. They felt that looked slovenly or something like that. And, yeah, get up for chapel and attend our chapel services, which were very strictly monitored. Every row had a monitor keeping track of chapel attendance. They would also keep an eye on you to ensure that you weren't sleeping during chapel. And then after chapel, you go to all your classes. One of the things about BJU, and I believe this is probably true of any evangelical-based university or college, is that each class starts with prayer. Every, every hour we sat and we had prayer in our classrooms. And yeah, so that was, and then I would finish up classes and then I would go to dinner or whatever at the dining hall with my friends. We had in the dorm rooms, we had quiet hour. I believe it was from seven o'clock till ten o'clock. So you weren't allowed to, if you were in the dorm during that time period, you weren't allowed to play video games. You weren't allowed to play play guitar or listen to music at high volumes. Like it had to be quiet in in the dorms, and that was all week. I think it was just the weekdays from seven to ten, and I think that set me up for failure. Because that, to me, just seemed like not a fun environment, but that would have been that's the perfect time to get my homework done and to do some studying, yes. but if I couldn't listen to music or if I couldn't just even have a video game on in the background, like i I can't study in that kind of an environment, I need some noise around me, I need stuff happening, so complete and utter silence would have been difficult for me to really study. So I didn't. <laughs> I would stay away from the dorms during quiet hour. Sometimes I would bring homework with me, but I ended up getting distracted by my friends all wanting to hang out. So we would hang out at the snack shop or by the time I was a junior, we'd go off campus. And and yeah, that, that was prime time for me to get my social life in. And then by 10 o'clock, it's already getting close to prayer group, which everyone has to be in, that's the campus curfew, is I think it was 10.30 or 10.25 or something like that. No matter where you were, you had to be back in your dorm room by 10.30, because then you were having prayer group, and then after prayer group, it was, you know, we had another hour or so to wrap up, so that was like an hour to do whatever we wanted to do, whether that was like play guitar, but we couldn't leave our dorm rooms whatever we wanted to do, or not dorm rooms but dorm buildings so whatever we wanted to do during that time be shower before bed, hang out, play guitar, play a video game, and then lights out was at I think it was at eleven at that time or maybe it was midnight by the time I got there but it was lights out and it was a hall monitor that would walk around checking all of the all of the rooms to ensure that everybody had their, was in bed with their lights off. So yeah, that was a a standard day. And then, of course, throughout your time, there are certain things that pop up. So there's always hair check. So they had strict rules about how long your hair could be. And they would have random hair checks. So occasionally, they would do them during chapel. So often, if you would walk into your chapel service in the morning, and you saw like a whole bunch of guys just stationed at the different Entries and row or aisles throughout the, the amphitorium. <laughs> they they would be checking everybody's all the guys their haircuts to ensure that our sideburns weren't below our earlobes to make sure that our haircuts were properly tapered and everything according to the standards. And then, occasionally during the semester, they would do a pre lights out hair check because. They wanted to be thorough and so uh, some of us could style our hair in a particular way to make it look like it was passing the hair standards. But at night before bed, our hair product has worn out or whatever or we just got out of the shower. So that's when they could catch us with our actual hair lengths or whatever. So sometimes our Hall monitors would be checking the rooms, doing hair check that way and writing up anybody who didn't, whose hair didn't pass muster. So yeah, and then as as far as campus life, one of the things that the university is known for is its surveillance and arming students with the ability to turn each other in and really enforcing the rules through spying on each other and they were also good at convincing people to to turn in their friends because let's say you were hanging out with friends and you happen to you're as a group you do something that is against the rules like you you watched a movie or you went to a restaurant that had a bar in it you were encouraged to tattle on your friends by the administration offering you lesser consequences, so the fewer demerits. I don't know if demerits is still their method of of punitive measures. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, if you were the one to turn your friends in, you would be hit with less of a penalty than your friends. So if what they were like, if, if you went to a, I don't even remember what the penalties were, but I'll just say if you went to a, a restaurant that had a bar, like right front and center in the, in the restaurant... Even if you weren't drinking, I think that could be something like 50 demerits in one shot. And But if you turned your friends in, you might get something like 15 or 25 demerits. So they really encouraged this culture of spying. You couldn't couldn't trust anybody. You couldn't trust your friends, like even friends that enjoyed the same things you did. I remember my brother one year he and some friends watched uh, an R-rated movie in at a friend's house in town. I think it was one of his towny friends. And some one of the friends that was with them turned them all in. And that was like an immediate 100 demerit penalty. But I think that friend got off with only 50 demerits or something like that. So yeah, that was the culture of spying. and And yeah, and of course, as I'm sure your listeners have probably heard, the penalty or the the limit for demerits i don't know if it's still the same limit but at the time that i was there it was 150 total before you got kicked out you could get a, you had one semester and then your slate was wiped clean but if you accrued 150 demerits in one semester you were expelled from the school and i think you were required to take one year off if you weren't allowed to return to to bju for a year after being expelled or something something like that.
0: Yeah. One one fifty is still the case because I remember a roommate, my freshman year, they accumulated hundred and forty nine demerits. And they're like,
5: if I get one more demerit,
0: I'm gonna get kicked out. I gotta and it was just because this my roommate was skipping church and like being honest about not going to church. And so he accumulated all of it from of that. And he was being petty because he wanted to go to this church that had the contemporary Christian music, but Bob Jones would not let him do that. And, and like he, he knew someone from his hometown. And actually, wait, I'm not going to say where because people will know. But from in his hometown, he knew them, and he, he had that connection and a way to build community. And they didn't let him do that, so he's like, you "No, know I'm not going to church." <laughs> oh wow, you. Bob Jones. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest about so, that's he, so funny. he talked to the dorm supervisor, and I think because like he showed enough like remorse or repentance or whatever, he wiped it and he was fine. Mm. Uh, but I that's how I remember learning it that way. Of these yeah, guys' I want to merit, and I'm going to get expelled.
5: Yeah, it's a culture that encourages dishonesty. I almost I have to laugh about the fact that your friend, your old roommate, was honest about it because I'm like, I didn't know anyone who was honest about. I know. I, I
0: lied on my church form all the time. Like, after
5: freshman year, I basically stopped going to church, and I was oh, you it. Wait, you had church forms? Y- yes. What did y'all have to do? We had mandatory Sunday service on campus. So if you were on campus on Sunday, you had to attend the big service. And the only way you could get an exemption is if you were on extension at one of the local churches for the Sunday morning service. And then they... Mm-hmm. strongly encouraged us to attend evening services at churches around town but that wasn't ever really enforced very well and because there were enough students who were doing extension ministries on sunday mornings they would just stay in their dorms sunday evenings because they were exempt from the rule of having to attend their local church in the evenings so they would be in they would be in the dorms On Sunday evenings, and so I could hide amongst them. Even though I didn't go on extension Sunday morning, I was at campus church on Sunday morning. And Sunday evening, I would act like I went on (laughs) extension that morning. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody asked, me like, "Oh yeah, no, I was, I was church this morning."
0: (laughs) I remember hearing that there used to be campus church, but by I started going to Bob Jones in 2018, and they did not have campus church. they had a list of Bob Jones approved churches, and you had to eventually pick one. Mm. And every Sunday, you filled out like a Google form or some, or Microsoft form or something about yes, I went to church. It was this church, and I went to these two church services at this time. And like basically, like the honor system of yes, I attended my two church services this week. So you either had to go to two church services on Sunday or one on Sunday and then one on wednesday and sunday mornings they would when i was there i remember them clearing out especially like the freshmen for clearing out the floor to make sure you were out for church and oh. so for me i learned the first time i skipped church it was on an accident. I slept in and I hear the RA checking rooms. So I woke up and it's funny because I was a rule follower my whole life until I got to Bob Jones. Um, (laughs) They made me a rebel. I put it on them, all of Mm. them. And I remember hiding basically behind my mattress in the wall and this person comes in and they didn't see me. Thankfully they left and that was my first. So then after that, I just figured out ways to skip church. It was either hiding in the closet literally and <laughs> or walking off campus in like regular church clothes but having athletic clothes underneath and i would walk <laughs> through this neighborhood and go to this nearby park and chill but i figured out ways to get around that that's amazing um, and Yeah. something that was so annoying is when i was at bob jones the pandemic happened And Mm. for a little while, they did for a short period, they brought back campus church because especially when the numbers got high on campus, they were like, you know what, guys, we don't want y'all going to local churches.
5: We're going to we're going to do campus church because that's also that's a great solution.
0: (laughs) Oh, I know. Over 2,000, (laughs) like 2,500 students all packed into this auditorium wearing these like thin little masks. And we're like every other seat, which is like two feet apart. so it's okay, whatever. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's not enough. <laughs> no, not enough at all. Yes. It's, it's,
5: it's funny that you you mentioned that your little strategies for for getting out of things it was kind of the same way. And interestingly enough, like growing up, I wasn't really that big of a rebel either. Even in high school, like even with the music that I listened to on my own, I guess I justified it because there weren't rules about what we were doing outside of school. And when in high school, as soon as I would leave the the church slash school building. I was on my own. I'd go to my friend's house. We'd listen to whatever music. So it wasn't like, those weren't rules. And I so I never thought of them as breaking any rules. But while I was on site, of course, I was adhering to all of the rules that my school had. When I get to Bob Jones, the, <laughs> there is no time that you are not subject to the rules of the university. So I found all sorts of ways out of it. And I early on discovered that having friends who live off campus just friends whose families live in 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 Greenville that was a ticket to getting out of all sorts of things i went to to college when we kept all of our movies on on dvd and in these like folios these big like binders full of dvds i had that in my dorm room but when white glove inspection was coming around or we were hearing rumors that a purge was about to happen i would just hand that off to my with my my townie friends and say here you go this the uh, hold on to this for a week or How could you explain purges? Oh, okay. There were occasional times where well, the hall monitors would, oh, I guess they were RAs by then, they would go through the everyone's rooms during like chapel service or something, and they would check for any potential contraband. So they would go through our closets, go through our the Drawers, everything, checking for checking for contraband. So obviously, stuff like mu- music, movies, that kind of thing, even clothes that were brands that were off limits. Abercrombie and Fitch was an off limits brand, so they would be checking for that as well. Which I always find that found that odd that I had so many friends that got caught with Abercrombie and Fitch when I never did. The only time I got caught with it was I had. Abercrombie cologne, and it had the logo on it, and my my RA just told me, while you're here, put tape on the logo, and that was it. I never got caught for, and I, I wore a lot of Abercrombie back then, and what was funny is that was the only time period in my life that I ever wore Abercrombie. Because I don't like the brand, but yeah. because it was a brand that was off limits, I felt the need to wear it. Yeah, you're like I have to now. Yeah. yeah, and then I also, by the time I was in my my junior year, I was dating a girl who lived off campus, which is the way the rules are. They're misogynistic and patriarchal. That they they had different rules based on your gender as far as dating with or without a chaperone off campus. So for example, if you were a guy that lived off campus, like if you grew up in Greenville, your family lives in Greenville, so you're a townie. If you're a guy dating a girl that lives on campus, you had to have a chaperone with you. But if you were a girl that lived off campus and you were dating a guy who lived on campus, you didn't need a chaperone. So I was lucky in that particular rule loophole. So I started going out with this girl who lived off campus and she would keep my sort of streetwear clothes. So I back in back when I was in school the whole ripped jeans thing was really big. So I kept a few pairs of ripped jeans and more stylish tight fitting t-shirts at at her place and she would keep some of it in her car so she would come pick me up on campus. I would change, I would rustle up my hair so that it looked, I would style it so that it looked like I I would fit in anywhere off campus. She never dressed, unless she was going to class, she never dressed like somebody who attended Bob Jones. So we would wander around town just looking looking like the seculars. (laughs) (laughs) So nobody would have known that we're Bob Jones students because that was the other thing too is they had people walking they had people going around town checking the movie theaters checking restaurants for students who were not supposed to be there and at the time that i was attending the student population was large enough that you could move around town under the radar and as long as you looked worldly enough they wouldn't have pegged you for for a bob jones student so that's what i did i just put on a disguise essentially
0: <laughs> i see and i know the way they get students is at these places is because the stickers that you have to have on your car if you have a car so like for you did you have a car and was that an issue with the sticker on it
5: no i didn't have a car on campus so i i relied entirely on my my townie friends who i had a friend who the car that he would drive to class had a sticker on it but then we would do things like we would borrow his dad's car to go to go out so we'd take his car from campus drive over i think he lived in greer or something drive over to greer drop off his car at his house grab his parents car swap out and his parents car didn't have a sticker and then we would just go around town go back to greenville but be in a non-stickered car Thank you for listening to this episode
0: of Surviving Bob Jones University. It would be greatly appreciated if you could give the podcast a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews helps listeners just like you find the show.